0: Well, this series that we're in um, is The Kingdom of God, and we've been looking at that together. And you know, John Wimber once famously said, walking into a church um, early on in his life as a Christian, he said, so when do we get to do the stuff? To which he was greeted with a slightly puzzled expression, "Uh, what do you mean, and what stuff are you talking about? And he bubbles over with excitement, well, you know, the stuff that Jesus and his disciples did. And, uh, and they just kind of looked at him a bit blankly as if to say, well, we kind of don't really do that anymore. And uh, one of the things I love about that story is that it just epitomizes that when you read the Bible with fresh eyes and you just look at it and take it for what it is, there is something there that is exhilarating and exciting about being a part of following Jesus and being in the kingdom of God. And what we're trying to do over these coming weeks together as a church is lay a foundation where if I may say this, where we become famous as a church for doing this stuff. And I want us to see it like that, that we're not just getting some Bible literacy and, and navigating our way and seeing a macro theme that's in the scriptures, but we're getting hold of the kingdom of God and what it means for us today. Because the kingdom of God is God's big idea. You see, it's what spans the breadth of the Bible. It's what lives in the hearts of the people, and, Jesus, and it's Jesus' great mission for the church. Within the Old Testament, we see pictures and promises, um, and at Jesus' incarnation, we see the initiation of the kingdom of God. When he returns and wraps up planet Earth as we know it, what will be left is the kingdom of God, heaven on earth. But for today and in this period, in this time, we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. It's here, but not in its fullness, not yet. So, as we look at today's passage, which is in 1 Kings chapter 4, you can go there if you want to. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get into this together and have a look at what this is about. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your presence amongst us. Thank you for what you're doing already in our lives, what you're doing already in our city and in the nations of the earth. Thank you for your heart for us, and I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would reveal what the kingdom of God is like and that you would make it manifest amongst us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When we, when we see a picture of the kingdom of God, it ruins us for anything else. Just recently, as we've been sharing stories from the front here, we've been hearing from a number of different people, and I was going to share a story about Kay and Emily, and I just wanted to say, I hope this is okay, but they shared about a lady called Gina that they met whilst going out and praying for people, and Gina came this morning, so I just want to say welcome, Gina. We're really glad that you're here, and uh, thanks for coming to be with us this morning. And Kay and Emily and Gina have been discovering something of the kingdom of God as they've gone out to pray with people on the streets and to care for people who are coming into the Walmart area, that part of the city. And they're discovering God's purpose um, for their lives and living with a sense of dignity as they do that. Megan Hartman shared recently about um, a worship night that was held on uh, New Year's Eve here, and how a friend of their family that they've known for many years on that evening made, did a whole 180 and turned around and gave his life to Christ. You know, and when you see that, it does something in you. It changes you. You start life. You start to see life more clearly. Philip Suarez was sharing just last week about um, even though in his own words it took him three years um, he's stepping out to lead a small group with his work colleagues and he's seeing God beginning to work in their lives through his initiating that activity he's beginning to see a picture of the kingdom of what it can look like and can I just say this Kayla Miller, OMG that's oh my gosh by the way if any of you know Kayla, she is a was a student here and is away with YWAM in uh, and is actually in different parts of the world as we speak right now, but if you 've followed anything of what God is doing through her, it is just truly remarkable. Uh, small confession here for a season of Kayla's life I was her youth pastor and uh, when I read about Kayla sharing the gospel to hundreds of people and praying for the sick and seeing them get well in the moment I am like oh my goodness what has happened this girl is beaming she is transformed she is uh, she is seeing the kingdom of God firsthand as she takes risks and steps out I just think it's something to celebrate as we hear things like that those of us who've been around if you know Kayla you know that that is a really remarkable thing Kayla as I've loved getting to know Kayla but just seeing the transformation is truly remarkable. This bold person who's living in this way before God, it's remarkable. And just to use this moment to plug it, in 29, in, on the 29th and the 30th of March, we're going to have YWAM here for a conference, and we're going to share more details about that. But that's something you do not want to miss. The kingdom of God is breathtaking. When you experience it, it leaves you wanting more, and yet somehow satisfied at the same time. It's too good to be true, and yet it isn't. It's here, and yet, not quite. Our souls cry out for it. When we encounter the kingdom, something inside us with, with words and sometimes with inexpressible groans, it just lets rip as we kind of long for the day when Jesus will finally return and bring a close to this temporary habitat. The kingdom of God, David describes it like this in Psalm 63. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. The kingdom of God is wherever the rule and reign of Jesus is. It's where he is. It's heaven. Experiencing the kingdom of God is to experience the presence of God coming to you and touching you. When this happens, we we encounter what heaven is like, what Jesus is like. And we become more like him. In 2017, um, Randy Clark prayed for me. Randy's renowned for uh, God, seeing God work through him in really remarkable ways, particularly in praying for the sick and seeing supernatural um, stuff. He, he prayed for me. He laid his hands on me and prayed for an impartation. An impartation is really just passing something on that God has given you um, and you see that in First Timothy, uh, sorry, in Second Timothy, in chapter one, verse six, when Paul lays his hands on Timothy and commissions him to do the work that he was called to. And the impartation that Randy prayed for for me was for the gift of healing. He'd been speaking about it in a service I was in, um, and sharing about how God was moving and, and times where he'd witnessed miracles. And he shared many stories of physical healings in that, in that moment. And he commented as he was speaking that if people in the room were beginning to feel a shaking in their hands while he was talking, he believed God was going to impart something of the gift of healing to these people. And as I sat there, my hands were just shaking. And I, my leg just started bouncing. And I'm doing all I can to control my body from losing it altogether. But inside of me, I was feeling this growing confidence, uh, this This something was rising up in me and I knew that God was doing something significant in the moment. I felt so alive and at peace and yet it was like my body was on full alert. It was like I was a sprinter in the blocks waiting to to explode and yet I was incredibly peaceful at the same time. It's hard to describe and yet there is nothing like the presence of God. And when you encounter him, it wrecks you. It leaves you knowing, I can't go back. I can't go back to not living in a way where I don't know God like this. And I share that because I believe that God wants to visit OLCC. I believe that he wants to come in a way that will leave us never being the same again. And I'm praying that all of us will never be the same again. Solomon's kingdom was a picture of the kingdom of God a taste or a foreshadowing of what, it was, of what was to come in Jesus. And in it, we see the characteristics of the kingdom of God and what it meant for the people. So the background to chapter 4 of 1 Kings um, is this is a point of time in Israel's history where it's a pretty remarkable um, moment because David has been the king prior to Solomon There has been a change in the way that the people of God relate to God. There's no longer the prophet, but God has appointed a king. He's appointed the the word in Hebrew is as the anointed one, the one to represent God on earth as the earthly king. So if you like, uh, Derek Morphew is actually very helpful in his language of this in his book Breakthrough. He talks about how there's the earthly king and the heavenly king, and there's the reign of the king that's being established by the king Jesus himself, by the king In heaven. And uh, this is, uh, these characteristics of the kingdom of David prior to Solomon, you can see and read about this in 2 Samuel 7 and 8, and also Psalm 2 talks about David's reign. Um, But David's kingdom was known because of his character, because of his heart for God. That was his legacy, wasn't it? He was known as a man after God's own heart. David's kingdom, though, was established through um, a series of wars and violent acts that were God led them, the people of Israel, to retake the land that he promised to give them. Um, and David fought many battles, actually, that enabled Solomon to step into his place as king so that he didn't have to. David carried a vision for the temple of God to be built. He carried it. He wanted to fulfill this calling that God had given him to to reclaim the land for the people of Israel so they may inhabit it. And he wanted to be able to build a dwelling place for God. But actually it was his son who actually fulfilled that vision that was given. And Solomon was the one who stepped into that place where they experienced an incredible season of peace and prosperity because of what David had done. You know, it's interesting for us to think about that when you think about the generational passing on of what happened there. David fought battles so that Solomon didn't have to. There's a call on each generation to win the battles that God is giving us, not just for the sake of that season, but also for the sake of our next generation. First Kings 4 is a picture of the kingdom of God. It reveals something of what heaven will be like. It shows us, in part, what we can expect of God's kingdom. In this season of the kingdom, now and not yet, it can inspire us and provide us with a glimpse into what God wants to do in our time here and today. And just briefly, there are four things that I want us to look at here that we can see in this chapter. The first thing is this. I haven't read the passage, have I? That would have been helpful to do, right? Yeah. I just realized I prayed and then I didn't read. Let's read the passage real quick. Here it is up on the screen. Okay. The people of Judah, this is verse 20 um, of chapter 4, 1 Kings. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all of the kingdoms, from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. It's quite a meal. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River, from Tipsar to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district governors each in his month supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight. And a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east. And greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. Ezraite, Wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. Brad, you've got some work to do. Um, He spoke about plant life from the seed of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Wow. Quite a list. That is a remarkable picture of prosperity and blessing that Solomon and the people of Israel and Judah experienced in this season. Something I want us to know right back at verse 20, though, is this. The people of Judah and Israel were numerous as the sand on the seashore. You know, there's a reference there to the promise that was given to Abraham. Um, the promise that he gave um, at the point when he was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac um, on the altar, and God held his hand, and he reminded him and said, Your descendants will be as many as the sand on the seashore. You see, God loves people. As numerous as the seashore, God has a big heart. He has a huge heart, and his desire for, is for the people, for as many people to know him and to know his love for him. 2 Peter 3, 9 writes it like this. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Sometimes I think that we, we forget um, how big God's heart is. He has the capacity to love every person on this planet and he does and his heart is that everybody would know and come to that place of repentance of knowing him of walking with him i think there's a challenge for us sometimes to remember that as we think about life and as we think about how we live that there's access to resources for great love for people but you know there's something about all of the particularly in the old testament um you can see there's, there's often this struggle and there's injustice and there's these atrocities that, that happen and they still go on today in the world. And I wonder if you ever think about that. Why does God allow so much injustice in the world? Why does he allow so much? He's loving and powerful. Why doesn't he just deal with the evil that people do? Part of the answer is that God loves those who do injustice. People who commit all kinds of wrong, he loves, and he's giving them a chance to turn to him. And often they are the people uh, God works through for macro impact. Now, I know that's the kind of love that I need. I personally am very grateful that God is being patient with those who've done wrong. Anyone else? Scott Harrison is the founder of Charity Water. Um, And here's one example that just came to mind for me as I was thinking about this. If you haven't read about his story, I recommend it. Um, But here are some high points just so you get a sense of it. Harrison founded the nonprofit organization Charity Water, which since 2006 has given 8 million people around the world access to clean water by funding nearly 30,000 water projects in 26 countries across the world. Over 1 million people have donated more than $300 million to its cause. But you know, Harrison um, was formerly a nightclub promoter and by his own admission was very gifted at getting people to spend crazy amounts of money on alcohol and partying. And in his own words, he he said this, he was was working all night and sleeping all day. He was out drunk almost every night and I had to just become, I had just become a really selfish sycophant, a hedonist. I betrayed the spirituality and the morality of my childhood. Smoked two packs of cigarettes a day for 10 years. I had a gambling problem. I had a pornography problem. I had a drinking problem. Scott Harrison committed his life um, to Christ as he made a U-turn. And and now he is living with a vision to bring clean water to the 2.1 billion people who don't have it in their home. God's on a mission to discover the wrong people. God has a plan for people whose lives are in a mess. Who are the people for us? Who are the people whose lives are messy right now in your world? How might we join Jesus in seeing lives transformed this year? The second thing that we can see here in this passage in 1 Kings is that uh, the kingdom is abundant. There is, this is, is, I don't know, Colt's not here, is he? I'm gonna talk about parties. Colt Westbrook tells me his spiritual gift is partying in the Christian way, not to <laughs> slur his character. And, uh, but this is like one big party. You get a look at the passage here and you just like they ate, they drank, and they were happy. That sounds kind of fun, right? Anyone else? Just me? That sounds nice. Some of you clearly like that idea. It's quite a feast at Solomon's uh, table, all of that food. That's a a quite remarkable amount. But you know, this is is a season of celebration and multiplication. The people of Israel and Judah are experiencing, this is something of the promise being fulfilled to them of enjoying the land that God was giving to them. It's staggering. It represents also a foretaste of um, Jesus and his rule. Solomon's reign provided Israel with an experience that ruined them for anything else. This was their pinnacle. It was an outworking of a promise given to Moses about inheriting the land and enjoying God's favor. Mount Morphew again says something to help here. He says, Solomon's rule reflected God's rule because Israel had the kingdom of God. They had it all. The kingdom of God is an abundant kingdom. There is not a lack of provision um, that is available for us. And I we don't have time to dig into this one a lot this morning, but I just want to leave us with a, a question. Do you believe that God has an abundance for you? Sometimes that abundance is, um, needs some realigning, in my experience, that the things that we think we need, that we, we want, Sometimes there is that journeying with God, isn't there? Of where He kind of shows us what we need and what He wants to give. But there is an abundance that God has when we enter into His kingdom and when we when we follow Him. He doesn't lack for the resources. I want to encourage us to believe Him to provide for all that He's calling us to do. Thirdly, the kingdom of God has a wise leadership, has wise leadership, and is a growing kingdom. Solomon's rule, which we can see in, in verses twenty-one and then twenty-nine to thirty-four. Um, is a pretty remarkable um, expression. I mean, the the verses 29 through 34 uh, give an incredible uh, description of the influence and the impact of what God did in him and how that affected the people and the regions around him. And you can see the details there. But his rule was characterized by wise leadership and you can see this in several of the places as well. Um, there's delegated leadership. You can see that he, there's a system that he's established for the, for the way that the different um, cities and the different districts would contribute and make it all work together. There's a sense of everyone taking their part, and he's empowered people to, do, to carry responsibility. There's an efficient, ordered economy. But surprisingly brilliant, kind of hidden in this, is something where I have to cheat a little bit exegistically because I have to jump back to a passage we haven't read together. But this is right at the beginning of um, chapter 4. And just for reference, I'll just share it with you. Um, there is a description of all of the people with different roles. And in verse 2, it describes that Azariah, son of Zadok, is the priest. And then in verse 4, it also says Zadok and Abiathar are also priests. So what's going on here? Um, how come there are three guys mentioned as priests? Typically, Israel, typically the people of Israel had one priest who represented them, the high priest be- before God. But there are three mentioned here. So what is this all about? And the reason I wanna take this little detour to look at this is because you see an example of Solomon's wisdom and his leadership working out. You see, um, verse two, Azariah is the son of Zadok who was the priest. Then in verse 4, you see the passage tells us that Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Now, under David's reign, Zadok and Abiathar had served as co-high priests together. Um, and they, um, but Abiathar had been fired because, by Solomon because he had uh, partnered with a coup to usurp David. So he wasn't in a good place. He'd been fired from his role. But Rather than banish Abiathar, Solomon allows him to retain his title and position of honor within the community as a priest. He's not, he's not functioning, but he retains that honor of title, and he's kept him alongside uh, in the community as an established person. But the brilliant bit that I think is, is this profound here is... He has not only uh, dealt with um, Abiathar in an honorable way for someone who came against his father, but he's also done something to establish a new level of leadership. He's brought Zadok's son into the position of being the priest now, and he's put his father alongside him. So he's brought a next-generation leader into place alongside a wise leader who already knows the role. He's managed to navigate uh, and restore relationship, deal with potential ego issues, and raise up the next generation alongside wise leadership. And everybody wins. It's just a remarkable picture to me of, of how that worked out for them. And this is what contributed to some of the order and the peace that they experienced. But something I want to look at in a little detail is how did this leadership come about? How did this wise leadership get established? There was blessing from the generation before. This is a big point um, for us to hear, and I touched on this a moment ago. Solomon ruled over a whole region. They expanded from David's time. If you like, he experienced a double portion. He experienced an expansion of what David had known. And there is something important about a general bless- generational blessing for us to see. The impact of the next generation is multiplied. Solomon inherited David's legacy of walking with God. And as this young man, he was in tune with the Holy Spirit. And he was wise enough, if you like, to ask for wisdom instead of something else when God presented him with that question. So he led from a place of security and confidence. And bold decisions like dealing with the mess of the priesthood um, he was able to deal with. The second thing I want to touch on in that is that the battles that David fought enabled Solomon to build on a new foundation. He had a new foundation to build on. So when we think about that for a moment and we pause and just step away from the text, I want to ask us a question. What is it that the generation what is it that the generation that has gone before us has won for us? What are the things that we would identify Something that stood out to me as I was preparing was that the reality is that we get to enjoy permission to um, experience and practice the ministry of the Holy Spirit because of the generation that came before us. They had to work through some difficult things to contend for that to be established. And so we now are able to step into a place on a Sunday and we don't have to have those contentions in the same way. We can live at peace with that and we can move and we can build on from that place which I would, ask, I would then suggest that leads us to a question of, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the next generation? What is it that we are to do with this victory that's been won for us? How will we take that on? Place to start is by asking yourself the question, who are you looking at and seeing God at work in? And I was thinking about the way that um, the, the benefits, the blessings of the generation that goes before gets passed to the next generation. And I had the privilege of being in a church environment for a season in England where it was really common in the culture for people to initiate uh, getting together. They would say, hey, Bethany, I see something in you. Could we get together and chat sometime and talk about, like, what has God done in your life? How are you able to know God in the ways that you do? Or similarly, you know, ask, recognizing what God was doing in people around you and initiating looking to learn from them and get with them so who are you pursuing who are you asking the question about what God is doing in their life or what God has done in their life so that you can receive see the, the kingdom has a way of rubbing off on us doesn't it it kind of passes on when we get around each other we pick it up off other people and I just encourage you, sometimes with the whole idea of um, learning from the previous generation, um, we can sometimes get locked into finding the perfect person who's going to be with us for three years and we're going to follow them around like Jesus and live in their house and then we're going to have all of the things that they got and then it's going to be perfect. When maybe perhaps uh, the way to do this, or way to think about it, is actually just recognizing that maybe there are deposits in many people in this church community that we can learn from. And maybe Jesus wants to be the rabbi for you and then other people can be an encouragement as you, walk, as, in, as you walk this out. I think let's recognize what God is doing amongst us and what is in each of us that we've got to give away to one another. You know, as, he, as I pose this for the, uh, this generation and the, the younger generation coming through, I do have a question for the older generation, if you like, the golden era. Those of you who are... Um, who've perhaps been in that place and have fought some battles already. What is it for you guys in this season? What is it that the Lord is giving you to do? In what ways, uh, what unique ways can you see the kingdom of God established now for the benefit of those following you? I was hoping that Don McGregor would be here this morning, but I don't see him. Is he, does anyone know, is he in the room? And have I just overlooked him? Yeah, he's not here, is he? Okay. Um, I'll share something with Don another time. But the, the question of what is it for you guys um, really comes out of this idea of um, your best days are not necessarily in your past. If it, is that okay to say? Your best days are not necessarily the ones that you've already lived. Who knows what God has got for you, even if it's for a short period of time in terms of lifespan. Maybe the greatest thing that God has prepared for you to do in your life is still to come. It may not be starting a business and, you know, starting a nonprofit or planting a church, which takes a lot of time and energy. And it, it may be as simple as finding the places where God has um, put you to give away what's in you to somebody near you. We don't always realize this, but we have more than we think we do. What Jesus has done in your life is powerful. And we have a terrible habit sometimes, well maybe I'll just own it for myself, uh, of underestimating or dismissing what God has done as not that significant for anybody else. But let me tell you, when you start giving away or you start being around people who don't know that little piece that you know, you suddenly realize, whoa, this has got power. This has got potential to do good. And I just—that's. this is not just for those who are, who've lived some life. This is for all of us. But the point I'm saying to you guys is, see needs you still. We need each other. And we need to be a people who are willing to do that. To say, God, whatever I've got, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to find the places where you've called me, and I'm going to do it. When we start doing that, God does remarkable things. All right, that wasn't in the script. Okay. Um, kind of was, but not really. Um, the last piece, we're going to land it here. The last piece here that I want to focus on is the kingdom is characterized by peace and safety. Verses 24 and 25 talk about how Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River from tifsar to gaza don't know if that's right but and had peace on all sides during solomon's lifetime judah and israel from dan to besheba lived in safety everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree like we haven't got time to do all the history right now but you, you can't miss this is huge i mean these guys they lived in conflict almost all the time were in a place where conflict was present or the potential for conflict was present. They fought war after war over land, over you name it. You read the Old Testament, you guys know, many of you, you know what I'm talking about. So we can't underestimate when with statements like that, which just kind of sit there all very nice and, you know, oh, that's nice. Peace and safety. Oh, Lovely. No, no, no. This is major. When you've lived conflict in your generations before you who have lived with conflict, when you suddenly have a season when there is peace on all sides, that is a big deal. Peace is a big deal for the people of Israel. The reality of peace and freedom from conflict was huge. And uh, we can't overstate that. The second piece about that I want to look at for us is about Safety. God's kingdom is a safe place for us. We can never be safer than when we're in the center of God's will. However, safety in biblical terms may not always be the same as what we think about. (laughs) I have shared this before, so forgive me, but it's so powerful for me uh, to think about this. But I once had the privilege of meeting uh, an Indian man who traveled around different parts of the world particularly in India Pakistan and Bangladesh and would just share with people about his faith about Jesus and would pray for people and God used him really in remarkable ways his name's Ram Babu and uh, he's an Indian evangelist and uh, he would often travel to dangerous places. People would say to him, "Remember, you really shouldn't go to this place. It's too dangerous for you to go and do what you did. And uh, you know, he would just say this to people. He would kind of smile. He was a very happy man and uh, always smiling. And he would just say, if it's my time to go, no one can save me. If it's not my time to go, no one can hurt me. And that was his simple philosophy about how he approached life. And there's something about that which challenges perhaps our view of safety, isn't there? Because the natural instincts that we often have are to find ways to protect ourselves. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying to be foolish and reckless and to just throw yourself off a cliff because God will take care of you. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not saying anything like that. What I'm saying, though, is that our view of safety can sometimes be distorted by how the world views safety. And the reality is that Jesus calls us to a life of risk, he calls us to be bold. He calls us to be people who follow him wherever he goes. And he'll take each one of us to different places. And risk will look different and safety will be different for each of us, wherever you are. You don't have to be an Indian evangelist to know that. And maybe God will never ask you to go into places where your life is threatened for sharing your faith. But maybe he will. The point for us is this that we can know safety when we're following him and when we're living in the kingdom. And he controls our destiny. He has, he, he's got it figured out. He knows what we need, when we need it, and he knows how to take care of us as he leads us in our life. My friend Simon Allen, who was a mentor um, early in my life as a Christian and when I was working with the homeless in Bedford, uh, shared with me once a story about how God dealt with this issue in his life. And uh, he began working at the night shelter and uh, often in an evening when, when people would come in off the streets to get a meal and stay for the night, there was often some challenging situations, people um, in addiction and living um, uh, often just violent and challenging lives on the streets because the streets are not, a, are not a safe place. But he would talk about how he would go to work and he would just be crippled with this sense of fear of what might happen tonight. What if somebody gets aggressive with me? What if somebody hurts me? What if what if something happens? And he didn't ever take it beyond the what ifs and so he sat down one time with a friend who was older, a bit wiser in his years and and just went through the conversation with him and said, "Um, this is what I'm, I'm feeling and so his friend Martin just said to him look, so let me ask you some questions what are you afraid of? and he would say, well I'm afraid something might happen and someone might get aggressive and then he goes, and then Martin would ask him so what might happen then? He says, Well, we may have to deal with a violent incident and, you know, somebody might get hurt. Um, and, then he, and then Martin said to him, So, and then what would happen? And he says, Well, I might get hurt and someone might stab me or something like that might happen. And then Martin profoundly says to him, So, and then what would happen? And he says, Well, I might die. And then Martin says, Well, then what would happen? Uh, be with Jesus and be in heaven. And Martin said to him, and what do you think about that? Well, I guess I'm okay with that. And although there's a, there's a simplicity, and I don't wish to underestimate the journey of, of, of what it's like to overcome fear, but there is a logic that ultimately we have to come to terms with. Jesus is in control of our lives. We're trusting him for every day, whether we live, whether we die. And we can't control when that happens. But there's freedom when we live knowing that he's in control. And there's freedom from fear because we can live knowing that he's got it. And we can be dangerous people when we live without fear. The Bishop of Baghdad is a British guy with the Church of England. And uh, he, uh, he just simply says this, that uh, men and women are dangerous people when they live without fear. And I guess the, what I'm not saying is that we develop this kind of macho approach that I'm not afraid of anything, but, but recognize that where fear is, where we seek to protect and keep ourselves safe, let's recognize where our safety really comes from. Whatever it is for you, um, there's something powerful that can begin to change in our lives and through and what God wants to do through us as we get to that place. So... The four things really that we've seen is that the kingdom is, is, um, is a kingdom that uh, is numerous. There are many people that God loves and wants in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is an abundant place. It's, it's characterized with wise leadership and with growing and with growth and there's peace and there's safety. And uh, as we close, I wanna, uh, I'm going to ask Brock to come here in a second and if the band would come back and um, be available that would be great we're going to close and um, finish and pray and worship and there's opportunities to take communion if you want to but I want to ask that uh, this morning that as we, as we pray together as we close that you would open your hearts to what God is saying to you that what he's speaking to you about the kingdom what he's inviting you into what is it that he is um, put his finger on this morning Sometimes in order to know more of the kingdom of God, there's an asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's an asking of God, would you fill me that I may um, experience more of your kingdom? Sometimes that's about, uh, though it's also about recognizing what are the things that block my ability to receive the kingdom of God, to receive the Holy Spirit. And it may be that God's just brought something to mind. It may be that at that last point, there's some issues of fear that you walk with every day. And you know that it's a barrier for receiving more of God. And I want to encourage you to, to just let the Holy Spirit um, into that place today as we pray. So, Brock, if you'd come.